Now on view at SCAD Fash, Manish Aurora's Life is Beautiful. Renowned for dazzling designs and a rainbow of colors, Manish Aurora has brought the talent and craftsmanship of India's rich sartorial history to the global forefront, earning international acclaim on runways across three continents. Designing in India since the 1990s, Aurora's glittering garments celebrate extravagant expressions of self through varied materials, techniques, and silhouettes in a triumphant union of Western and Eastern aesthetics adapted to today's multicultural society with a touch of humor. Find out more at scadfash.org. Support for WABE comes from 100 Miles, a nonprofit committed to preserving Georgia's 100-mile coast. Protecting this critical coastal ecosystem takes all of us. Watch the stories of the innovators and future leaders who help keep our coast flowing at OurGeorgiaCoast.org. W-A-B-E in Atlanta, this is City Lights. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for listening. Leonard Cohen was an accidental composer of film music, though not one of his songs was written for that purpose. Filmmakers just fell in love with the godfather of gloom's music. Cohen passed away in 2016, but his legacy continues with his mentee and tourmate, singer-songwriter Perla Batala. She was in town last summer to perform a special concert in the House of Cohen. Later this hour, we'll hear about her tribute to the beloved poet and musician. First... Composer John Williams turned 90 on February 8th. He is likely the most successful, most recognized, and most influential composer of any genre of music of our time. In his 70-year career, he has scored more than 100 films, and his musical soundtracks are attached to some of the most popular movies of all time, including the Star Wars, Jurassic Park, Indiana Jones, and Harry Potter franchises, E.T., Jaws, Superman, Schindler's List, and many more. During his birthday week, his recent album with the Berlin Philharmonic, entitled the Berlin Concert topped the charts in Germany as the number one selling album. WABE film music contributor Dr. Scott Stewart is with us for a salute to John Williams at 90. Scott, welcome back. Thanks, Lois. It is so wonderful to be here and to celebrate John Williams. May we all live lives of productivity and purpose and art well into our 90s, as John Williams has. You know, history does not often label living personalities with accolades like legend and the best of the best and has changed the course of history. 
But these are all descriptions that have been bestowed upon John Williams by his colleagues. And everyone loves him. He is such an endearing person, a humble person. He is a good human. And uh, his lengthy list of awards we could read, but they really belie his true contributions to both classical music and music for visual media. There are few composers that we could name, even from the Austro-Germanic canon, that have music that is so universally recognized and stored in our individual and long-term collective memories as John's. Original music for film has a relatively short history, maybe just about 100 years old, as music for movies and television and video games has grown and evolved, it has done so under the light of this true North Star, and that is the incredible art and craft and skill and intuition and modeling of composer John Williams. Scott, John Williams' career has been defined not only as a composer, but also as principal conductor of the Boston Pops from 1980 to 1993. In addition to his movie scores, his music has appeared at five Olympics games, NBC Nightly News, and Sunday Night Football, and the Galaxy's Edge theme parks. What's astonishing is that he shows no sign whatsoever of slowing down as he continues work with the director Steven Spielberg on two upcoming films, as well as concerts with the Vienna Philharmonic and several American orchestras this year. prologue from the 1991 Peter Pan story, Hook, starring Robin Williams. Music by John Williams, no relation. Scott, where in the context of film music history does John Williams fit in? Well, when we study the history of film music, we divide the timeline roughly into four periods. The first is the silent film era, which really wasn't silent in terms of music, but it lasted from, let's say, the 1890s into the um, 1920s when Warner Brothers exhibited The Jazz Singer in 1927. That was the first movie with synchronized sound. So that initiated this next period this growth of soundtracks and the Hollywood large classical orchestra in this period we call the golden age of cinema, which lasted from the late 20s, early 30s through the end of World War II. And this is when we had soundtracks by composers like Eric Wolfgang Korngold, Alfred Newman, Max Steiners. These are the pioneers of this big, neo-romantic, grandiose, lush sound. Music sounded like this. 
from the movie Elizabeth and Essex by Eric Wolfgang Korngold. So after this time period of the golden age, we get into the 1940s and 50s, film music went into several different directions, especially emphasizing pop and jazz music because studios found they could make a whole bunch of money by attracting younger audiences to films and then selling the soundtracks afterwards. High Noon kicked off the idea of having a main title using a pop song. Large orchestral movie scores didn't really go away. This is the period when Bernard Herrmann was writing amazing soundtracks. And there were lots of infusions of jazz and pop that kind of forced orchestral music into the back seat at this time. Henry Mancini's music for the TV series Peter Gunn captures the sound of this middle period of film music. the late 60s and into the early 70s, think about movies like The Graduate in 1967 with an all Simon and Garfunkel pop soundtrack and Saturday Night Fever in 1977, the same year as Star Wars, music by the Bee Gees. So it was this time that symphonic soundtracks were creeping back into Hollywood feature films when blockbuster films were becoming the thing. And it was really kind of when John Williams was starting to work on big films. He'd been working in television for several years. He won an Oscar for his adaptive music for the Fiddler on the Roof movie, and then kind of became a Hollywood mainstay with his work on Irwin Allen's disaster films. If you are just joining us, this is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Reitz, speaking with WABE film music contributor Dr. Scott Stewart. We're celebrating the legendary composer John Williams in honor of his recent 90th birthday. In 1974, John Williams and Steven Spielberg teamed up for their first collaboration, Sugarland Express, which led to his engagement as the composer of Jaws in 1975. Williams is currently working on the underscoring for The Fablements to be recorded in March for release in November. And that marks the 29th collaboration between this remarkable director-composer duo. And with John Williams returning to this more epic sound environment in the 1970s and into the 80s in our current time, we have what I would call the modern era of film scoring, which has both the traditional Hollywood big orchestra, but the addition of electronic overlay. So we have familiar composers in this transition like John Williams, Howard Shore, Jerry Goldsmith, James Horner. And now we have some slicker technological additions to film and television and video games. And this is where Hans Zimmer has made an incredible impact. So today we have multiple generations of composers with very different backgrounds, including some that weren't conservatory trained, they were 
coming from rock bands and garage bands. And all of them are bringing a really interesting variety of techniques to film and television scoring right now. Scott, is there a signature John Williams sound or style, or is it just dependent on the movie? That's such a great question. You know, I've heard John say in interviews that he doesn't think he has a style, but I think there are, for those of us who are avid listeners of his music, certainly musical characteristics in his film scores and his classical music that emerge at least as common threads and recognizable patterns. His large-scale narrative film scores reference the golden age, that large Hollywood orchestra that harkens back to Korngold and Steiner and Newman. And those composers, of course, largely immigrated from Europe where they grew up during the late romantic era of music and they were listening to the music of Richard Wagner and Gustav Mahler and Richard Strauss. story goes that director Steven Spielberg was not satisfied with the bicycle chase ending sequence of E.T., the extraterrestrial. Having heard the amazing 10-minute musical sequence entitled Adventures on Earth, which John Williams wrote, allegedly Spielberg scrapped his video montage and re-edited the entire segment to fit the <laughs> soundtrack. Which is amazing to think about. That never happens, uh, but it works so beautifully at the end of E.T. And I think that really hits the nail on the head with a style that we would assign to John Williams. And that is that I think he writes to picture that is, his music has such a high degree of correspondence to the narrative content that references characters. It checks out the emotional tone of the entire movie environment. It reflects what's going on in terms of dialogue and action. So John Williams is the master of spinning out these super expressive and memorable, hummable melodies which attach themselves to emotion and to mood and to character. And then it gets placed beautifully in the movie so that it doesn't really interfere with dialogue. There's been a recent trend in some circles in film music to not write to picture. And that is to churn out more generic mood music that lays out a kind of you know, general emotional tone but doesn't really dive into the, the, the depths of the narrative content itself. So this is not necessarily a criticism. It's kind of a bias of my own, but it's an observation of kind of stuff that I've seen more recently in um, a lot of, of productions. 
This is music by a well-known Hollywood composer, and it's great. It is super exciting and engaging, and it has some grit and some good energy behind it. But I feel like you could drop this into any number of action films, and it would kind of set the same emotional tone without specifically attaching itself to the elements of that film. A John Williams score is custom designed every time it gets written, like this score to Far and Away from 1992. A little bit of Far and Away by John Williams, we are immediately drawn into the world of Irish immigrants seeking a better life in 19th century America. Mm. Scott, you and I can both attest to having many friends in the professional and educational music worlds who've had many opportunities to perform both film and classical music by John Williams. Musicians of all ages love playing and conducting his works. It's challenging and rewarding at the same time, and it connects players to the familiar film worlds of their growing up years. Williams has a knack for writing for individual instruments, giving everyone something interesting to play. And that's what I hear from musicians time and time again is how, one, how hard this music is to play. It sounds so easy when you're singing to the theater, but it's it's intensely virtuosic and everybody gets a piece of the action. It's maybe not just always the usual suspects. A John Williams score certainly includes lush, romantic strings, but you can also often expect really powerful brass. You can always hear a harp in there. Piano is often in the percussion section, and he loves all kinds of percussion accessories in the back. There are also often moments for solo instruments to appear in his soundtracks, and I guess, again, some of the expectations might be around flute and oboe and French horn, but John Williams is not afraid to go into that orchestra and uh, pull out soloists from unexpected corners like tuba and this excerpt like bass clarinet in the night bus cue from Harry Potter and the Prisoner of Azkaban. I think it's very important to mention that for music fans, a great deal of John Williams' movie music, which is designed to be in the background of movies, works perfectly for the concert hall or for personal listening in the absence of the film. We can credit John Williams himself for being a leading programmer of his own and others' film music 
during his tenure with the Boston Pops Orchestra. Today, it's not unusual for the world's top orchestras to program high-quality film music in concerts, as well as host film nights where the orchestra plays the soundtrack live to film. And Lois, I don't know if you had the same experience. Uh, we're both graduates of the Jacobs School of Music at IU. But when I was there, film music was often mentioned with kind of a crunched up face and a snide tone that it was uh, second class music. There had been some musical snobbery associated with it for many years. But I don't hear that today. I hear that there's a a very healthy respect in classical music quarters for the really very skilled writing that goes on in this medium. And I, I'm, I'm glad about that. Of course. And it, the music has integrity. And it all harkens back to what Duke Ellington said about there only being two kinds of music, yes. good mm -hmm. and all the other stuff. <laughs> exactly. a number of characteristics in John Williams's musical writing, much of which pays tribute to the founding film composers of the early sound era, including Max Steiner, Alfred Newman, and especially Eric Korngold. They were essentially classically trained composers and conductors who were forced to flee Europe and were able to find work scoring movie music. In Williams's scores, we hear the sweeping and grandiose sounds of the large romantic hero orchestra you mentioned, with emphasis on a high correlation of music to what is happening on the screen. Williams also uses a technique made popular in late Romantic era opera, especially by the German composer Richard Wagner. This is called the leitmotif. Yeah, the leitmotif, uh, I guess what we would call a theme that could be associated with a character or a place or even an idea is used in both opera and film to represent and reference any of these characters and places and objects, either when they're staring at us on the screen or when they're being alluded to and maybe they're off screen. The first six Star Wars movies, which went in order four, five, six, one, two, three, director George Lucas actually referred to the Star Wars trilogy as a space opera. <laughs> so the tie-in with Richard Wagner is way more than coincidental, oh, I think. <laughs> and Scott, I remember someone in an interview with Max Steiner introduced him as the man who invented underscoring. And he said, I didn't invent underscoring, Wagner did. <laughs> yes, 
That's right. That, that's, this is the continuation of Wagner's work, right? It is music drama. And that's, that's what he set out to do. So John Williams spun a pile of melodies for all of the good and evil characters in all of the Star Wars movies, and even one for the Force. Leitmotifs have this nifty quality of being kind of like Play-Doh. They can, they can be mushed up and shaped into different manipulations by the composer to reflect change, growth, mood, state of the thing that it represents. So the most famous leitmotif, surely, that John Williams provided is the famous two-note theme from Jaws. And this is an example of a leitmotif that is attached to the shark, but is known by most of the people on the planet Earth. It has to be the most famous two notes in music. <laughs> W-A-B-E music contributor, Dr. Scott Stewart. In a moment, we'll discuss the outsized contributions John Williams' music has made to the Star Wars movies. Amplifying Atlanta, this is W-A-B-E. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly, and Richmond Graduate University can equip you with everything you need as a licensed professional counselor while integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. That's R-I-C-H-M-O-N-T dot E-D-U. You love free, and at Ameris Bank, so do we. That's why we're proud to offer worry-free, hassle-free Ameris Bank free checking. Manage your money your way with convenient access to digital, mobile, and telephone banking, all with no monthly service fee or minimum balance requirements. At Ameris Bank, we're with you. For more information or to open an account, visit our local bankers in person or online at amerisbank.com slash free checking. Other fees such as overdraft fees may apply. Ameris Bank, member FDIC, equal housing lender. This is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Reitzes. Great to have you along. Let's return to my conversation with WABE film music contributor Dr. Scott Stewart. We're discussing the legendary composer John Williams, who recently celebrated his 90th birthday. Luke Skywalker, the Star Wars hero played by Mark Hamill, may be the character who grows and changes the most in the original series. We meet him as a naive farm boy. Two movies later, he's the Jedi Master. This is a clip I show my film music classes, and it's actually not super memorable in terms of action, but the music helps tell this story for us in a really important way. This is episode four, the 1977 Star Wars. We become familiar with Luke and Luke's theme as the primary Star Wars theme. We hear it in the explosive opening crawl, 
But the first time we meet Luke, he's just this kind of young, idealistic moisture farmer <laughs> on the desert planet of Tatooine. And here's the first time that we hear the tune tagged to him. Yeah, all right, fine. Let's go. If he gets a translator, be sure it speaks Bachi. Doesn't look like we have much of a choice, but I'll remind him. So this is not the music of swashbuckling hero that we see swinging across the chasm uh, a few minutes later. This is happy-go-lucky Luke. He's on a hot planet, and he's yearning for adventures in space. So the leitmotif of the Star Wars theme, the Luke theme, tags him, and it gives us a snapshot of what's going on in his psyche. There was a 16-year gap between the first trilogy and the beginning of the Star Wars prequels, beginning with The Phantom Menace in 1999. John Williams's familiar music helped bridge the gap as well as introduce new themes associated with new characters. It's here that we encounter the origin story of Anakin Skywalker, who later becomes Darth Vader. And Anakin receives a rich, melancholy theme with a John Williams signature string section, including really lovely harp. theme from Star Wars The Phantom Menace, what John Williams also cleverly does is weave in a fragment of the Imperial March, Darth Vader's theme that we first hear in The Empire Strikes Back. This had become massively popular by this time it's played in every basketball game when the referees come out. <laughs> and what he does is takes a little snippet of the Imperial March and weaves it into the Anakin theme. We all know this is going to be Darth Vader when he grows up, but it foreshadows Anakin's eventual fate, and it helps connect basically a generation's worth of time between the last Star Wars movie and the current Star Wars movie. So in the field of neurocinematics, we know that the encoding of long-term memory, musical emotional memory, and olfactory happen at the brain's hippocampus, making music and smell two of the most powerful evokers of memory. So John Williams and other gifted composers have known this intuitively, and John has a gift for attaching melodic ideas to characters and ideas so that we can recall them 
really for our entire lives. Neurocinematics, Scott, is that really a thing? It's really a thing. If you go to a neuroscience and behavioral biology conference these days, music is all the rage, both as a therapeutic tool and as a learning tool. We're finding that a lot of patients with dementia and Alzheimer's and Parkinson's are responding to music therapy and able to recognize caregivers and healthcare professionals that they otherwise might not. So it's a really interesting young field where music and visual media like movies and television are uh, kind of unlocking some really cool understanding of how the brain works. Oh, that's fascinating. I was aware of the value of playing music for Alzheimer's and dementia patients, but I didn't know there was this visual part connected. It's really young, uh, but I think it also speaks to the fact that, you know, media, music are all, and I don't say this in a negative way, manipulating our brains. They're, they're, they're creating fantasy and creating um, space. And we're, the more I think we understand about the elements of that, the more we're able to decide how deeply we want to kind of go into it or put up shields. John Williams grew up in New York. His father was a percussionist in the CBS radio orchestra. John played clarinet, trumpet, and trombone in his school band. The family moved to Los Angeles in 1948 when he was 16. He took composition lessons at UCLA. And then he had further band experience in the U.S. Air Force in the early 50s. Then John Williams returned to New York to study at the Juilliard School, where he also played jazz piano in clubs and on recordings. Yeah, and in fact, he is the pianist on the Peter Gunn television series soundtrack, which oh, is always wow. fun to remember. I And I think he did a number of um, sessions for Gilligan's Island. He, I think, initially had written a kind of Calypso-like theme for them that got rejected. <laughs> and we ended up with the well-known ballad of Gilligan's Isle. But uh, it's fun to remember that, you know, the, the composer of all these epic soundtracks also uh, had some other tools in his in his tool belt and it's such a special treat i think when john williams brings us some of his jazz background and i think maybe most famously uh, you know stuck in my memory is the cantina band cue from star wars i love it <laughs> Thank you. 
that's John Williams' big band and Steel Pans, which uh, <laughs> bit, I guess, in the CD saloon in Moss Eisley. Um, I'm also a huge fan of the Leonardo DiCaprio movie, Catch Me If You Can. Such a fun cat and mouse thriller. And we just dive in at the very beginning of the opening credits with this really intriguing spy thriller music with some very cool jazz. And it also gives us a little bit of time and place setting information. Loving this lighter orchestral palette with alto saxophone and string bass and vibraphone. And the Catch Me If You Can concert suite makes a wonderful feature at shows. Hmm. John Williams has recently composed the Han Solo theme for Solo in 2018, as well as theme music for both of the Star Wars Galaxy's Edge parks. More than two years after the ninth and final Star Wars movie, The Rise of Skywalker, John Williams has recently composed music for the upcoming Disney Plus series Obi-Wan Kenobi starring Ewan McGregor. That will be released on May 25th, and he has identified what he believes to be his final two film scores, both for Spielberg, The Fablemans and the fifth Indiana Jones movie. And it's fun to hear him talk about how excited he is to be able to turn fuller attention to concert music, <laughs> which I'm thrilled about. Uh, according to um, friends in Hollywood, he still gets up uh, early, early in the morning and works through uh, dinner time, six days a week, pretty amazing. It really seems impossible to just be alive anywhere on the planet and not have grown up listening to John Williams's music. His music is so good and it's so familiar and it seems to be a kind of common tie with a global presence. He has shaped how all of us hear movies and television and video games and so for the music that he's brought us and the music that is to come, we are so grateful. Happy 90th birthday and many more to the maestro, John Williams. Oh, and may the force of his great music always be with us. Scott, thank you so very much. It was my pleasure. Thanks, Lois. Dr. Scott Stewart is WABE music contributor and host of Strike Up the Band. He's on the music faculty at the Westminster Schools and conductor of the Atlanta Youth Wind Symphony. Coming up, we'll continue our music and film journey and share one musician's tribute to the legendary Leonard Cohen. 
Amplifying Atlanta, this is 90.1 WABE. This is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for being here. Leonard Cohen was an accidental composer of movie soundtracks, even though not one of his songs was written for that purpose. Filmmakers just fell in love with the godfather of Gloom's music. Cohen passed away in 2016, but his legacy continues with his mentee and tour mate, singer-songwriter Perla Batala. When Batala was in town last summer performing her special tribute concert in the house of Cohen, we talked via Zoom, and she detailed how she first became aware of the poet and musician. You know, I was aware of Leonard Cohen kind of peripherally. I had friends who were talking at the time about the album that Jennifer Warrens had done as a tribute to him. And then so there was a lot of talk about, oh, yeah, he's the guy that in the 60s you had songs like Suzanne. And I knew those from Judy Collins, you know, repertoire. And so I was very interested in the idea that this poet was now being celebrated again with this album. And coincidentally, I get a phone call. Would you like to audition for Leonard Cohen? Oh, my. Oh, my. Yes. And and I had not even listened to Jennifer's album. I hadn't done any of my homework. So, of course, immediately I run to Tower Records and I find every cassette tape that I could find because it was over 30 years ago so cassette tapes were still a thing back then and I thought wow I listened to a lot of his work and thought oh well he's exceptional this is a really special artist and a unique songwriter and singer of course because his voice was also very unique and very different And I was thrilled at the thought of of just getting to meet this person. I didn't even think about getting the gig or anything beyond just meeting him. I was so enthralled with his work and taken with his poetry because I grew up in a Spanish-speaking household. And uh, my father was a singer. A lot of the music that we listened to was poetry. The Spanish language itself is poetry. So it just took me back to my deepest roots, and I was so excited. Well, you're being rather modest here. How did you come to his attention that you even got the call? Well, (laughs) I think it was just meant to be, honestly, because they were auditioning everyone in town. I was hearing through all my friends about, oh, they auditioned for this big tour that Leonard Cohen, uh, my girlfriend, Julie Christensen, was already hired by Cohen. My name came up way late in the process. It was two weeks before they were about to launch this tour, this giant three-month tour in Europe. And I just showed up and, oh, it was so funny. I'm at the studio 
you know, because after listening to his music all night long, I decided that the most important thing uh, I had to decide was what was I going to wear for this audition? Of course. You know, first first impressions and everything. I just really uh, thought that was very important. So I picked my wardrobe. I was so centered. I've never in my life been this centered for an audition. Usually I hate auditions. They're nerve wracking. And uh, it's just a crazy way to, to meet anybody. But I walk into the studio. I meet Roscoe Beck. He shakes my hand. He said, first things first, I just want you to meet Leonard. He's coming out from the rehearsal hall. And I see this figure walking toward me. And we look at each other, (laughs) our eyes lock, and we start to just smile and giggle as he, of course, approaches me and Leonard Cohen is dressed in black from head to toe. And I am dressed in white from head to toe. (laughs) He takes my hand and he said, darling, this is a match made in heaven. Oh, (laughs) Oh, you're the white to his black, the light to his dark. Well, how many years in total were you with him? Well, we were good friends till the end, but we toured, you know, he stopped touring after the 93 tour. So, I mean, it was about 10 years that we worked together. And anytime he was working on something, he would call me in and talk about vocals or ideas or whatever. He, he just would love to have me sit in the room while he was working. And that was always fun for me to watch his process. I'll bet. Yeah. I'm curious about the structure of the program if the music is chronological, if you have theatrical elements or an overarching narrative, will you tell us how this concert unfolds? Yes, I do like to tell stories. And I think a lot of that comes from my culture. My dad was a storyteller and Leonard, of course, oh, wonderful storyteller and and on stage. He didn't do this in the last few years of touring, I noticed. But when we were touring together in 88 and then again in 93, he told the most incredible stories and he would have people just laughing, you know, falling in the aisles uh, laughing. So I take my memories. There's no order. Maybe there there might be, but that's not a, a conscious decision on my part. Also, you know, I can't sing every single Leonard. There are some songs I cannot sing. They're just a song that I sing has to be something that it sits deep within me. And so it takes a while for me to decide any song that I'm going to sing. I do tell stories between the songs and I just things that, you know, reminiscences that I have or memories. And there are stories that I remember that Leonard used to tell. And I try my best <laughs> to tell them as beautifully as he told them. <sighs> There's just sort of a storytelling and song you know, approach that I have. An informal one, it sounds like. Exactly. I've never written anything down, and it's just what I do remember of my experiences with him and our friendship. For many listeners, Leonard Cohen's most famous song is probably Hallelujah. Right. It's been covered by everyone from Bob Dylan to Bono to Bon Jovi. Perla, what makes this song a classic? I don't know, uh, and neither did Leonard, because it wasn't his favorite song of his, and he has said it many times. But 
I know that it's, it captures the hearts of people and, and it, it's not necessarily even the lyrics. It, Cause I know people that want to play this song at their wedding. And I just say, just take a look at the lyrics. I don't think you want this at a wedding, but it's a simple chordal structure. And it's one that builds your emotion and it touches on your emotions. So I get that. And I think it was one of his more beautiful and simple and almost classical in a way, his melody. Mm. I do think that that has a lot to do with it. And that refrain that makes everyone want to join in. Exactly. And anyone can sing it in any language. It's com- a completely a multi-language chorus. Indeed. <laughs> so... My favorite Leonard Cohen song is Dance Me to the End of Love. Yes. I know your father was Mexican. Mm -hmm. Your mother is Argentinian. Mm -hmm. Would you talk about how you infuse your mestiza culture into Cohen's music with Dance Me to the End of Love as an example? Is that? Yes. That's not an unreasonable demand on my part. It is, oh, absolutely not. And I love to talk about this because uh, my father suffered a lot from racism. He came to the U.S., he joined the army to gain citizenship, and in the army had constant assaults on him about his race. And my father actually grew to be a racist. You know, I was always stunned at some of the things my father said, even as a very little girl. And I just, I was so confused because I would look at my father and say to myself, you know, but he's Afro. My father is actually like African. He was very dark, had African hair. He had kinky hair. I knew he was Mexican. And I just said, you know, he's got Afro blood. He's got Afro-Mexican blood. And as the years went on, I just knew it. I just knew that. And I also knew that I was Jewish. I just knew that. So, of course, thank goodness for, you know, these genetic testing now. I could do it through the mail and confirm my thoughts that I was not only African, but that I was Jewish as well. My mother is a Hungarian Jew. They came from Hungary to Argentina. And my mother never mentioned her her Jewish roots at all. And of course, my father, Afro-Mexican, because there was an African slave port very close to where he was from. And Leonard's favorite language was Spanish. And that's the thing we had in common. That was the bond that, that we formed early on was this love of the Spanish language. So when I decided to do my tribute to Leonard, I said, I'm going to take some of these songs and translate them into Spanish. And he was delighted with how it all worked out. I already thought Cohen was deep and profound in the English language. In Spanish, it took it to a new level, an entirely different level. Singer-songwriter Perla Batala. Speaking about Leonard Cohen, you can hear my entire conversation with Perla on our website, wabe.org slash City Lights. You've been listening to City Lights, our daily exploration of arts and culture. Tomorrow at 11 a.m., 
A school in a dare park, vacant for decades, gets new life and new art from the Creatives Project. Plus, the stars and creator of Single Drunk Female stop by and share why they love filming the TV series right here in Atlanta. City Light's senior producer is Kim Droves. Summer Evans is our producer, and our engineer is Shelley Canavy. I'm your host, Lois Reitzes. Do connect with City Lights on social media. We're at WABE City Lights on Facebook and Instagram. And you can follow me on Twitter at L-O-I-S-R-E-I-T-Z-E-S. Thanks for listening to WABE Atlanta. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. The world is full of mysteries. Are ghosts real? Is that yogurt expired? Hey, the unknown can be scary. But when you donate to WABE, you know where your money is going. Your gift supports the journalism that keeps you informed and the programs that pull back the curtain on complicated stories. Help us make the world less mysterious. Become a member now. Go online to wabe.org slash donate and thanks.